Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our continuing series on the second half of American history. In podcast number 26, we finished off more or less our discussion on the Great Depression, looking at the effect of some of the programs in the National Recovery Act, the NRA programs of Franklin Roosevelt. We looked initially looked at his relationship with the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, and the love-hate relationship, of course, with uh, Franklin's wife, Eleanor, and Winston Churchill. But it, we ended it, though, most importantly, by looking at what was going on in the rest of the world as those countries were attempting to grapple with the effects of nationalism and, in some cases, the ongoing effects of the Great Depression, which, again, was a global depression. So Italy went fascist. Germany resorted to Nazism, as we know. Japan went militaristic. So as we begin now looking at the unfortunate real reason why the Great Depression ended, it wasn't specifically any of our 32nd president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt's doing. I'm not here to minimize what he did or denounce his efforts or even belittle them in any way. We don't know what if any of those or a combination of those factors would have worked. Why? Because the world was already in going into the uh, final throes of a second global conflict. That, of course, being World War II. Remember, again, that all the way up through the Great Depression and the onset of this second global crisis, that first global war between 1914 and 1918, still at this time, is being referred to as the Great War. And its slogan, the war to end all wars, because, again, the consensus was clearly no human beings in leadership would ever let the world turn to in the magnitude that it did or turn to allow the fighting to the magnitude that it did. And sadly, we find ourselves there again in the late 1930s. So in terms of World War II, again, one of the reasons why I, when I teach my uh, history classes, I don't test on years is because it's no real agreement as to when World War II started. As an actual military event, yes, it's going to be September 1st, 1939. But that's not when America begins, or that's not when the war begins for the United States. And when one says World War II started on September 1st, 1939, that can lead the individual to think, or can lead people to think, okay, so one or more world leaders was bored on the night of August 31st and decided to invade another, invade a country on September 1st. So many events were happening. And that's prior to that, of course, for decades. And that's one of the reasons why I cover in the way that I did both in my classes and in these podcasts, both in U.S. History 2 and World History 2, the way world, uh, the Great War, World War I, was resolved, because there are still plenty of people that theorize that really, and sadly, World War II was nothing but a continuation of the ill-resolved World War I. 
one of the things I, I encourage you to do, and you can stop the podcast right after I, I give you the title to this, is, is to open up a browser and type in the name of this book. It's called Daddy's Gone to War. Again, the name of the book is Daddy's Gone to War. If nothing more, look at the cover of that book knowing that that little child, and it is a picture for those that don't have the ability to stop the podcast uh, or have available browser near them, available to them. This, what we're looking at is a picture of a small child, probably, you know, an older toddler that is grabbing dad's leg. We assume it's dad's leg. We don't see the adults in the picture, but there is clearly a human being dressed in uh, pants, most likely khakis, and judging by the name of the, the title of the book and every all the other parts of the book, we assume that that is a soldier going off to war or maybe came back home. Regardless, the innocence of that child, though, looking up at, and we assume, either her mom or her dad. But it's an innocence, though, that is going to vanish from that child as the innocence will of billions of people worldwide as this next conflict unfolds. It is a sad tribute to a war that as pointed out in an article in Foreign Affairs Journal on page 80 of the November-December 2019 issue. It was a sad tribute to a war that will consume between 1939 and 1945, 7,000 lives per day. It is just such, again, a sad tribute to what is about to unfold. Looked at another way, DePaul University professor Tom Mikaitis, as he wrote in his book, Conventional and Unconventional War, that paraphrasing roughly what's written on page 199, that unlike World War I, which took place mainly in Europe, this is a conflict that would truly be global in scale involving 1.7 billion people in 61 countries. Looked at another way, 75% of the world's population at that time. This conflict would sadly complete the evolution towards the concept of what we call total war. For more on that, again, the book is called Conventional and Unconventional War. Not exactly a Walt Disney book or a book we're going to read to our kids at night before they're going to bed. Written again by Tom Mokaitis. That's M-O-C-K-A-I-T-I-S. And that was specifically uh, paraphrased from page 199. So as we begin now our podcast on the Second World War, I'm going to take this essentially six-year conflict and I'm going to boil it down to one word as to its reason, as to its cause. Please hold your fire when I say this word, because chances are, I would imagine most listeners are probably thinking I'm going to be saying something else. But let me unpack what I mean when I say that this one word, by and large, is expansionism or expansion. It's German, Italian, and Japanese territorial expansion. That's what the rest of the world, outside of those three countries, are largely going to be pushing back on. Now, again, one might be scratching their head, and especially if you do not listen to my podcast in series, 
you'll note for those of you that have listened to them, that going back again to prior podcasts talking about World War One, that at the, that by 1914. 84% of all livable land on earth was dominated or flying the flag of just a handful of countries. The United States, along with the counterparts, strong Western counterparts in Western Europe, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Germany, relatively newcomers to the world stage, Italy in the 1860s, Germany in the 1870s. They are now grabbing at a piece of that territorial pie, as are the Japanese throughout the 1930s, throughout the 1920s, when able, but especially into the 1930s. Because of this, this is going, this conflict is going to be the world pushing back on those three countries who are embarking on more and more land. And again, if you're doing the quick math, you think, okay, 84% of the land is dominated by the United States and Western European countries. That does leave 16% for the rest of the world. Think again, because again, roughly 9% of that remaining is locked up under sea ice, which nobody's exactly interested in, which leaves literally just a single digit percentage of available land to other nations, other peoples. And not to insult intelligence of my, of my listeners here, but let's face it, if that 16% is left over, again, majority of that 16% locked under sea ice, the other percentage available for everybody else, roughly 7.1%, you can pretty much assume a common denominator of that land that's available is considered not useful for one reason or another to the United States and or to the great powers of Western Europe. So again, remember that the origins of the war, if nothing more you get from this podcast, it really is about one word, expansion. Now, how can such a six-year, unbelievably deadly war be explained in one word? Because it can't, <laughs> even though that's the real reason. We do need to understand the conflict. We have to look at how the major actors that got control of the levers of power ultimately would go on a conquest to take as much land as possible. And again, for those of my listeners, perhaps other history professors, political science professors that may be somewhat doubting me or flat out contradicting me, remember again that one of Mussolini, as he campaigned, again, he's a poly, he was a politician, he truly envisioned and discussed Italy returning back to the days of the Roman Empire and truly wanting to consume that much land. Remember again, listeners, for those that haven't listened to my world history podcast, that at its height, at the height of the Roman Empire, they comprised of 35 modern day countries around the Mediterranean Sea, all around it, with no exception. That is North Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, excuse me, Southwest Asia, Southeastern Europe, Southern Europe, and even all the way into Western and Northern, Northwestern Europe. That's a lot of land. And Mussolini, his eyes were on that land, on that model. So again, that's the origins of the war itself. What we're going to do in terms of trying to understand the rise of these three major countries and the conflicts that will ultimately ensue is I'm going to tackle this largely one at a time, comparable to the way that Franklin Roosevelt and the allies did when scratching their heads trying to figure out we have three aggressor states 
we have Germany, we have Italy, and we have Japan. What do we do with that? Well, not that they had the luxury of handling one at a time, but they did put most of their eggs into the basket of one dictator at a time and then worked their way into the others. In this case, I'm going to be looking at the rise of Adolf Hitler. One of my um, parts of my reputation as a professor is I have no problem if you miss one of my classes. I don't even need to know why. Unless we had an exam schedule that day, if you had to miss class, you had to miss class. Why? Again, I just don't feel like it's my, my business. I'm, we're all adults, or at least my students are. I try to think of myself as one. Sometimes my wife doubts that. Uh, but anyhow, we're all adults, and I don't need to know why you're, you're not there. What I won't tolerate, though, is somebody coming in late. And it's not because of personal reasons. That how dare you not want to hear what I have to say? Not at all. I don't want the classroom door opened and having students, faculty, or staff on the outside of that hearing a half a sentence or something along that line and then misconstruing what they thought I was saying in there. Let's face it, we are in an environment in academia now where professors are being brought up on partial statements made, partial sentences made, and people are misconstruing things. So as I told the students, once class begins, I want that classroom door closed, barring some kind of an alarm, we'll open it when class is over with. Part of the reason is about what I'm about to share with my listeners here, which we will not certainly finish even within this podcast, which is the reason why World War II is going to be many podcasts in sequence here. There's so much here to discuss. We're not going to talk about Adolf Hitler the way the average world and American history textbook talks about Hitler. And they, for the most part, focus on Hitler in his adulthood with maybe a paragraph or two, a little bit about his upbringing in terms of political upbringing, and then boom, where we're all of a sudden he's in power. That sadly misses how he actually got there, and he, by extension, the Nazis. And the reason, again, I go into the, to the background on Hitler is because, again, no, he's dead. Thank God he's long dead. My point is, where are the people around the world today that are mirroring what that man did and may not even be in power yet or are trying to get power for themselves. I'm not saying to learn the life of Hitler to master the life of Hitler. I'm saying learn the life of Hitler so we can ask ourselves in modern times, where are those types of individuals today that we need to stop before it goes too far and it costs 6 million lives plus in order to turn that tide back? So. Adolf Hitler. He's the first child born to Eloise Sinclair that didn't die shortly after birth or was a stillborn. Eloise Sinclair had, we believe, four, or Hitler was the fourth. They had three children prior to that that were either stillborn or died right after birth. By the time Hitler got up to his first birthday, he had passed his three siblings that would have been older than him had he they lived and had he been born. Because of this, he would end up, through no fault of his own, grow up in a very, very polarized household. He grew up essentially being taught and disciplined by a father who one could argue really showed no love to the young man, to Hitler himself, to Adolf Hitler himself. Eloise, we don't know why. One can perhaps surmise that after three 
stillborn or or uh, birth that they died shortly after birth that perhaps his heart was just hardened at that point and couldn't be softened any further perhaps we don't know why Eloise was just simply a very cold-hearted man in his behavior and reactions towards his son in Eloise's eyes in short it was as though Hitler could not do anything right he has that on one side from one parent and then Clara on another side who looks at Hitler as somebody who looks at a young Adolf as literally somebody that can't do anything wrong. Everything he touches golden. So he's growing up in a dichotomy that could not be more severe, could not be more further polarized of one parent despising him and another going almost so far as to say praising him and adoring him. It's this, again, lopsided parenting that he is going to have to muddle through in his toddler and young uh, years before he, his father dies when he's early in his teenage years, as his mother will die as well, roughly at that time. But moving ahead to after his father died, he applied to art school, and in fact, also applied to architecture school. But let's back up to the art school. Adolf Hitler had a penchant for painting. I don't know necessarily if they were watercolors or I've not received any information if they were oil-based uh, uh, paints, but he apparently had a hand at drawing and painting. And he applied to the art school the first time and was rejected. There was just something off with his art samples that he provided as part of his application. He applied a second time and once again, clearly the detail was there, the clarity was there, the imagination was there in his samples, but once again, something was off. It turns out that what was missing in Adolf Hitler's uh, samples that gave or made the uh, admissions committee for the art school in Vienna pause and ultimately to deny him is that he painted essentially very pleasant scenes, a park, on a sunny afternoon, boats in a river going down the river, scenes that generally leave a, a nice impression on the viewer. But something was glaringly missing from every one of his samples. And what was missing was people. Now, again, on the surface, you might say, okay, yeah, there we go. Here, here we start this, this uh, sick side of him. Well, keep in mind this point. I'm not much of a painter. My, I'm not much of a painter, so I can't speak from experience. What I do paint generally looks pretty good. Of course, I'm biased uh, because of my model railroad. I will paint buildings and different things, but I have had professional uh, students who are professional artists in their own right, and I have read elsewhere that it really isn't that far-fetched that Hitler might not have painted people. Painting or sculpting the human being is one of the hardest things an artist can do, not because of how difficult it is, but oftentimes how difficult it is for people to accept and say, wow, that looks good. You did a good job with that. We tend to be very critical of anybody that attempts to recreate ourselves, meaning the human race. It's one of the reasons why on my model railroad, my city that I have on there, complete with high-rise buildings, most scratch-built, meaning I built them from hand, they're not a kid, one of them being 26 inches high, I purposely do not name my city any one individual name that of a major city today. I also do not recreate iconic buildings 
buildings that are famous for one reason or another that are well known. Because once people identify that, rather than say, wow, what a great attempt, the critical side of them comes out and says, wow, I can see what you tried to do, but you missed that, you missed this. Well, apparently that's the way it is with artists in one form or another, regardless of whether they're sculptors or uh, painters or what have you, that it's very hard to get acceptance, very hard to get approval when you paint human beings in, in one way or another. So that may have been what was behind Hitler's uh, reasoning, why he would paint the scene of a park, a ball in the air being chased by a dog, but never the human being throwing the ball to the dog or any other humans in there. So again, we, we don't know. I, I, I'm, I only share with you what I do know that pertains uh, to what we're, we're uh, talking about here in this podcast. But at the, uh, the second time that Hitler had applied to the art school, when he was denied, he was given a recommendation to apply to the architectural school. I don't know. We apparently, from the little bit I do that I have read, is that Hitler was dejected, very much the one who was denied the first time, denied the second time to art school. However, for the architectural school, I don't know how much time lapsed, but he ultimately did apply. Now, unlike the art school that said, please submit samples, the architectural school didn't want samples. They wanted your application and all the components of that. But then if you, if you made that first cut, you would then be brought into, let's just say, a second level application where you would be brought into a room and given all of the appropriate instruments to draw a, mechanic, a mechanical drawing of what the admissions committee would show the applicants. And Hitler attended, as were many of the people in the room, and they were given a certain amount of time to draw to the best of their ability. And then the admissions committee drew the curtains from the window. And outside of those windows was the Vienna skyline. So it was an attempt at a very fair way to assess what each applicant attempted to do with the admissions committee being able to see the exact same view. It was a way, again, to try to be fair or impartial uh, judges as to the mechanical and aptitude and uh, architectural ability of these applicants. Well, Hitler, he drew what he saw. However, he only drew half of what he saw. The other half came from, obviously, what was only in the man's mind. Because while the buildings that Hitler drew were to the best ability of his ability drawn to scale and they were recognizable buildings, the entire scene was in the middle of being destroyed. The buildings were in the process of being destroyed. Needless to write or to say right here, needless to say, or when I'm teaching, needless to elaborate on, let's just say that he was, quote unquote, denied. By this point, when Hitler was denied admission to the art school and to the School of Engineering there in downtown Vienna, Austria, he ran through what was left of his mother's inheritance that he had quickly gone through. And he eventually became homeless as he started to burn through his money as a result, of course, of not working, no income generation. He stayed at the, what, we would, what we would call today uh, various uh, places of public housing. And one of the things that uh, young Adolf Hitler did 
to try to put a little food in his, a little money in his pocket and food in his stomach, is he started painting postcards and trying to sell them on the street. Again, if you want to pause the podcast, as we're nearing the end of this first one, anyhow, on the Second World War, the origins of, and look up this cafe in downtown Vienna, Austria, and it's called the Cafe Central. So it's Cafe, common spelling, Central, C-E-N-T-R-A-L, depending upon the search engine, there may be an E, there may not be. But in other words, it's the Central Cafe. I'm getting chills once again thinking about it, and I don't mean this in a good way, but I have been to this exact cafe. As I approach the cafe, I would ask you if you do want to stop this podcast or if you can listen to it simultaneously, pull up a picture of the cafe or images of the Cafe Central, and I want you to look at two images. One of them is of the inside, excuse me, the outside, the front door. If you have a picture of it that's far enough away, there is nothing fancy about it. There is nothing like, oh, I can see why this is a place of notoriety. No, it's it's innocuous. It basically blends in with the other buildings and uh, stores around it. There is nothing unique about the building except for its history. Because there is where Adolf Hitler, we don't know exactly how long he did this and how many days a week he may have done this, but we know that he was painting and selling those postcards there just outside of the door of that cafe. Ironically enough, to date, we have not been able to pinpoint the, if an exact intersection or meeting was had ever taken place. But inside that cafe, which is the reason now I ask you to look at pictures of the inside. If you look at that inside, when I said a ca- the cafe or a cafe central, forget the central part of it, just cafe. Uh, my American listeners, you might have, I mean, nothing wrong with it, but you might have just been picturing basically like a Panera Bread. You might have been picturing a Starbucks, maybe a Dunkin' Donuts. As you can see, this is far from it. This is the quintessential European coffee house that has its origins back in the 1700s Enlightenment period. These are cafes that you are never in a hurry to get in and out. These are cafes you do not go in and yell your order because of everybody else standing in front of you and they want to get you in and out as fast as possible. This is a place where life slows down. It doesn't stop. It doesn't go in reverse. It just slows down. There is no reason that any of the wait staff expects you to hurry. It can be as quiet as a library. Again, as I have been in this cafe and spent a couple of hours there. And it is in here that you also have some of the best minds of the area will come to meet, sometimes to talk, sometimes just to think or to think and write. It was in the Cafe Central that two future revolutionaries by the name of Leon Trotsky and Vladimir Lenin drew up and outlined a plan to overthrow the last czar of Russia, to overthrow the last czar of Russia, and to attempt to create a communist society based on the intentions and wants of the worker or Soviet class. Trotsky and Lenin were no dummies. They knew that enemies would lurk, who might attempt to overthrow their ideas. Russians who might tip off 
so the security forces or the army or other Russians that might tip off the Tsar's family or Nicholas II himself. No, Leon Trotsky and Vladimir Lenin were smart enough to know that enemies could be anywhere that might attempt to thwart their plan. And they were doing everything that they could to protect their plan and as they planned accordingly. If this happened, the likelihood is there, but again, we cannot say a guarantee. If, however, this happened, Trotsky and Lenin, if they had sat in that cafe talking about their plans, knowing that enemies lurked wherever, did they have any idea that the human being they would have to fear most, the human being that would come within an eyelash away of destroying their plan, was that homeless kid selling postcards outside the cafe. Again, I get chills thinking about the unbelievable irony if those three men had actually crossed paths. Cannot say for sure that it didn't. Can't say, of course, for sure that it didn't. I don't get into the speculating, like most likely it did. No, we don't know. But we know that all three men were more than familiar with that cafe. And had Trotsky and Lenin had any idea that the man that would kill millions of Russians to thwart communism was the homeless kid there in downtown Vienna, Austria. Well, Hitler's days were numbered. They were trying to sell postcards for and to put money, uh, to put food in his stomach. He sold, he'd come and go throughout the teens as to how uh, selling the postcards here and there when his, he would be down on his luck. But perhaps to his own good fortune or luck, Hitler learned that a conflict was ensuing, a major military conflict between the likes of Germany and France along with the allies on both sides. Hitler wondered if he could partake in that conflict, might he be able to make a name for himself? Might he be drawn to a higher cause and give himself a reason to wake up in the morning? When we come back, we're going to find out what Hitler's role was in World War I, and you might be surprised at what you learn about his history there. Thanks for listening.